We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rippy Writes with Brian Scott. The transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Sunday night, Monday morning, whenever you're listening to this podcast? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast. We've got Weldon Rodenberg, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist in his normal spot, talking about the ugliness that was Ole Miss's 45-20 to 20 loss in Baton Rouge. We hit a lot of big picture and, uh, you know, immediate future stuff regarding the team. Defensive performance, lack of tackling, lack of depth, really everything. We hit it all, bounced around the SEC as well, and uh, kind of tried to paint the picture of what is next for this team after its first defeat of the season and a loss that I think was probably more telling than, uh, you know, your normal loss. But uh, we shall see. It is, uh, it's a good conversation, though. I think you'll enjoy it. And, of course, the fastest-growing segment on American soil, Soccer Corner, to cap off the pod. Before we get to the conversation, though, I want to remind you the podcast is brought to you by a new sponsor, Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate. Ray is a licensed real estate agent based in Oxford. He works for Square Real Estate. Whether you're looking to buy a five-bedroom dream home or a two-bedroom condo in Oxford, Ray can help you do that, buy or sell. Whether you're looking to move from place to place, sell one condo, go to another, sell your house, go to another place, Ray can help to take the hassle out of that process. He provides individual service to each and every one of his clients. He takes pride in helping you find a home that you can cherish. Maybe you're coming up for the football games, tired of paying for the overpriced hotel rooms, asking friends for an extra room, whatever the case may be, and want to get a place of your own. I promise you, Ray can find you with a terrific place that fits in your price range, and boom, all of a sudden you got it squared away. You own the place. You can come up whenever you want to, football, baseball, whatever. Maybe you're an Oxford local looking to go from one house to another. He can take the hassle out of the home selling process and help you find a home that fits your needs to the next place you're going to. Whatever it is, he is an expert in real estate in across Oxford. He loves helping people, loves working with people, particularly Ole Miss people, and can help you find the best home possible for your needs. All you have to do is give him a call, tell him you heard about it on the podcast, and he will hook you up. The number is 
888-382-4824. Just give them a call. Tell them what you're looking for. The home buying and selling process, whether it's a second property or a normal home, can be overwhelming, can be overcomplicated. He will take the hassle out of that for you, provide you with options that are going to fit your needs, fit your price range, and boom, you're good to go. It's good to work with people you trust. I wouldn't send you to someone I don't. He's a sharp guy. He works very hard. And he is an absolute rock star in the industry. Check him out. Ray Stevens of Square Real Estate. If you're looking to buy or sell a property anywhere around Oxford, give him a call at 601-624-4824. Broker number is 662-832-7777. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox matrix interval and advanced modeling mechanism that can help that helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Skybox, coming off just an unbelievable weekend in both college and the NFL. NASCAR destroyed it this weekend. If you're not just blindly betting on NASCAR, even though you don't understand the sport, uh, and just profiting off of Skybox NASCAR, I don't know what you're doing. Today, they hit plus 42 and a half units on one race. That is right. You heard that correctly. If you had taken their picks on one NASCAR race, whether you watched it or not, you would have profited 42 and a half units in a day. I don't know anyone else is doing that. They're also helping you make money in the NFL and in college. Stop paying your bookie out every week, adding to the Sunday scaries. Just go on skyboxsportspicks.com, pick a picks package that fits your price range. You try it for a day, a week, a month, whatever. You can go all sports, sports-centric, whatever the case may be. It'll fit your price range, and boom, you'll be better aligned to profit than you were 10 minutes than trying than before you tried Skybox. They'll send you a nice little email, color-coded spreadsheet, all the different units on it, and you will be equipped like a pro to profit because that's the only way to actually do it in the long run. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Once you buy a package, type in the promo code RIPPY, that's R-I-P-P-E-E, and that'll get you 20% off. Saving money and making money at the same time. What could be better? Skyboxsportspicks.com. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg on the loss and what's ahead for the Ole Miss Rebels. All right, we now welcome on Rippy Wright's football correspondent, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Weldon Rodenberg. And that was ugly. The Rebels lose 45-20 to in Death Valley and Tiger Stadium. Started out pretty well. Ole Miss gets up 17-3 to and then are outscored, what, I guess that's 42-3 to over yeah. 39-3. I'm not a math guy. 42 to three over the final three quarters. It was uh, pretty much a thorough ass kicking. Were you in attendance? Uh, the, how, how did that go? What was going on there? Yeah, I was there. Um, I, I went in on Thursday and um, got to be with the family. We had a pretty big tailgate. We've My grandparents have had one for years in the same exact spot every year. So we went in town. A uh, decent amount of Ole Miss friends, kind of some of my little brother's age, some my age, some your age uh, with, with Tapper and all them. So uh, it was a fun weekend, obviously, minus the game. Um, I mean, that was that was tough. But, yeah, I was there. I just got back to Houston, like I was telling you earlier, about 30 minutes ago. The um, Yeah, the, I, I, you know, we were talked about a lot about the spies and whatnot outside of your Tiger suit. It looked like you may have recruited Tapper. Tapper, I saw, was wearing it. I got a couple of Snapchats, Tapper, and LSC shirt. I was like, what the hell is going on there? Well, um, my little brother wore, wore one, too. You know, it, it, for them, you know, it's – no, I guess for me, it's a little bit different, but leaving Baton Rouge and coming back, usually, at least with Tap and with Sam, it's it's like if LSU sucks, they don't really care. But, like, if LSU's got something to play for, they kind of end up leaning that direction despite going to Ole Miss. And that's like, that's like so many people going to so many different colleges. It's nothing unique to uh, an Ole Miss deal. But, but yeah, there was definitely some, some inner, inner fighting amongst the family. 
as you had don i proudly donned the red and blue walked in there bravely to tiger stadium it didn't go well for Ole miss after a quarter um you know i was looking through it i watched part of the game today um on the plane ride back from dallas i didn't make it through the full game i didn't necessarily feel like i needed to i watched it by myself the first time on tv felt like i was pretty locked in there's a i don't know if you want to start with like a macro thought with this game it seemed to me a lot of the Potential cracks in this Ole Miss armor at 7-0, and soft front end of the schedule. It felt like, to some degree, almost every single potential question mark that this team had, from depth to a couple freshman tackles to the run defense being bad, all of it kind of got exposed in different ways and led, you know, after the first quarter really led to the onslaught that you saw on Saturday. And it sets up for a fascinating conversation that we'll, I'm sure, get into in a minute. But that was really my main takeaway from this game. It's like this was Ole Miss's first real test outside of Kentucky. And it was in Death Valley. It was, in on, the, it was on the road. Like, what boxes would they check in terms of what we maybe didn't know about this team? And I don't think they checked very many of them. I could give you that the quarterback dart played pretty well i thought he was actually pretty good and the receivers did some nice things but outside of that i can't really find very many to check old miss was really bad in every other area and outside of that i thought however many many tests you want to throw out there in terms of specific areas of this team outside of the two i just listed i thought they failed of just about every one of them and it got ugly yeah i mean it's hard to disagree with that uh i mean even when they were up it felt like you know they had to do a lot to get there while kind of you know, treading water, trying to stop LSU. They missed a field goal, got one. Um, but really, I mean, I guess from a macro standpoint, it, it looks like what happens when a really well-coached team plays a team that doesn't have as good of players. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know that's simple and, and, and everything, but uh, both sides of the, of the lines of scrimmage, they lost. Big uh, I mean, they lost time of possession. They lost the rushing stats. Uh, I mean – it's even debatable as shitty as LSU's special teams have been that they actually might have had a better day. So, I mean, nothing really went their way. And, you know, the, the, the same issues that we've seen that you, you kind of felt like maybe they could get fixed showed up again. I mean, just the inability to score or really do anything in the second half offensively happened again. And then defensively, you know, we thought we, they might see a bounce back with a more, uh, I guess, kind of – you know, focused uh, you know, approach against LSU where you knew you had to play four quarters of really good football, and they, they could not stop them. And even when they did, it felt like it was more LSU doing something wrong than Ole Miss doing something right. And once they got that ship rolling and the offense sputtered for Ole Miss, I mean, LSU, it was five yards to carry, ten yard outs. I mean, it was just death by a thousand cuts. Uh, it just wasn't good. I mean, they got, uh, they got their, their ass thoroughly kicked. I mean, there's really no other way to say it. Uh, I mean, there were some pretty big, you know, kind of moments in the game that could have changed a few things. But I, I don't at the end of the day, I don't I don't think there was any way it was going to not be what, what it was on Saturday. It, it was not good. Yeah. And it, it, it's weird. Like, I, I agree with you. I mean, Ole Miss got up 17 to three. It felt like they had to work pretty hard to get there. And at 14 to three, when LSU missed the kick, I think probably what speaks to that, though, I was texting our buddy William Mayo and I was like, I, I think they really need six here. And I, I'm not really breaking any news. But the fact that they like that, I felt like, man, they really need to get 20 
up 21 to three here and kind of take control of this thing, I think kind of speaks to the fact of how shaky it looked defensively. I just didn't really have a ton of confidence. Even when LSU sputtered a little bit early offensively in terms of finishing drives, right? They have the field goal instead of the touchdown, then they missed the field goal. They were still pretty much moving the football at will. And so that's why it kind of felt that way. And then I guess to add on to that, Ole Miss finally gets a stop right before halftime to allow them to go up 20 to 17. That felt huge. Then they get a stop coming out of the third quarter and coming out to start the third quarter. And so instead of allowing LSU to double them up, the defense, to their credit, about the only thing you could give them credit for on Saturday, did get back-to-back stops. But that felt very, you know, I remember thinking after they got the first stop, okay, Ole Miss needs to go down and make this a 10-point game. Otherwise, this could get weird in a hurry. And just the sheer fact that you finally got two stops resulted in, I don't know if those were the only two punts of the game, but the first two punts of from LSU's side to that point, the fact that it felt like, man, they really need to go down and score a touchdown here, I think kind of speaks to the fact that just how bad they struggled. I'll pose this question for you, and this is like a bad, simplistic one, but I don't really know any other way to phrase it. If you would look at this game and say, is it more about the offense or the defense? You may disagree. I would say emphatically the defense. Look, the offense wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. The second half struggles still seem to be mystifying, although I think this one was a little more clear as to why it happened. But I left this game thinking this team will be much more limited by its defense than the offense because not having Zach Evans hurt, not Zach Evans, and he's hurt and he can't play, certainly hurts. Not having Trig hurts. I know we'll probably get to the Casey Kelly portion of this in a little bit later in the podcast. But I just left that game thinking, man, that defense is in a lot more trouble than the offense. I don't know if you agree, disagree. I'm just going to throw it your way. That's what I left thinking. No, I completely agree with the defense being the biggest issue in this game. I mean, offensively on script, you know, I said they kind of sound, felt like they were struggling to get there, but to their credit, I mean, they did. They, they got script, through they awesome. and uh, made big plays. Now, it, it didn't feel that sustainable, and I don't know why, just being in the stadium and watching it there, it just didn't. Uh, I did have no explanation for that. But defensively, um, I – it's, it's hard to say. I feel like, you know, I've done this. Maybe many people that have been covering the team have done this. I just don't know that we gave enough, I guess, talking points or thoughts towards what losing Sam Williams and Campbell and Robinson would look like. Absolutely. I don't know if you watched the Cowboys game today, but was, Sam Williams awesome. is dominating for that team right now. And there's a lot of talk about this this scheme, the three-down scheme. It's what everyone's been talking about. Like, you can't stop the run with this team, uh, with this kind of defensive scheme. And well, that's not true because you watched them do it for, for five or six games last year against some pretty good teams. What it definitely can't do is, is stop the run with the current set of players that are on the team. Um, I, I think they are slower at linebacker. I think they have – I mean, Keys and – and Brown and those guys, I think their instincts compared to a guy like Campbell are just completely different. Uh, uh, Troy Brown is an incredibly productive player, but he does not have a lot of ass, and he gets blown back on a lot. Of, he is not uh, a knockback tackler. He is a he is a get the guy down, and it, it resulted in you know five yard gain after five yard gain after five yard gain, and then you know this kind of defense it, it, it protects your DVs from explosive plays, um, but LSU still got some. And they made, I mean, that first really bad throw by Daniels and they, you know, they couldn't get their head around and find it. And then on the next drive, 
you know, Igmanosin can't get his head around and, and commits a PI on Brian Thomas. And, you know, the run plays were explosive. Daniels got on the ground. I just think the, the current roster, just straight up Jimmy's and Joe's from the, the matchup against LSU, it really showed for the first time with this team. And it's hard to, you know, watch that performance and not have at least a little concern about what this roster really looks like. Because I was giving a lot of guys the benefit of the doubt, but I, I do think with the step up in competition and athletes, uh, it, it didn't look great. And there's really no other way around around it, in my opinion. I think you're spot on with that, particularly when talking about the linebackers. I mean, you talk about the quickness element, the speed and the instincts. Chance Campbell certainly checks those boxes more than who they have out there today. And for Mark Robinson, who just kind of felt like a guy adjusting to a new position, maybe didn't play technically sound all the time. That dude was quick as hell. And when they had a run, play, so it, fat. it just didn't matter. The closing it, it, it to the line of scrimmage matter. of the ball carrier was unbelievable. And to your point, they don't have that this year. Um, Troy Brown productive, but undersized. You mentioned the slower instincts. It's certainly a drop off when they have to kind of get, get Ashanti Sistrunk some snaps. And they just don't have the depth there. And you talk about the death by a thousand paper cuts, the second and fives, the you know second and three or whatever. I actually went back before we started recording this and did a little bit of math. I would tell you out there listening to take this somewhat with a grain of salt because it's looking at a lot of lines. I have a Jackson Academy math education. This is not high-level stuff here. But I went and counted every first down snap that LSU ran in the game. And, again, I would say to consider this as a give or take by one or two in terms of the numbers. By my count, LSU ran 37 first down plays. Um, which would make sense, right? They had 35 first downs. They got the ball on their first drive, and then they got the ball to open the second half. By my count, it's good math. They, they had, yeah, simple math there. So they had second and five or less on 31 of those. 31 of the 37 times, by my Incredible. count, the way I wrote it down, is second and five or less. That means it could be obviously second and one, second and two, whatever. Also another first down. 31 times they had second or five or less. I, I, that's hard to win a football game. You met, you had the line earlier where you said. Even when they did stop them, it felt like LSU doing something wrong versus Ole Miss doing something right. Yeah. The only exception to that that I can even think of is the fact that they finally got home on a blitz right before halftime and sacked Daniels to get a stop there. Outside of that, I think you're spot on with that. That's a really staggering number, and it speaks to the run issues. It speaks to the linebacker. It speaks to the lack of depth at linebacker, the lack of Jimmys and Joes. That's again, I don't know what the, the average rate for a team would be on a given game like that, because I don't think people count such things. But that would seem very difficult to win a football game when a team runs a first down play 37 times. And on six of them, you're only getting them in some sort of favorable situation. And I will point out two of these were second and six. So it's not like they were. Yeah, the five no. that would exist were great. They weren't very much negative. That to me was kind of jaw dropping, but not surprising at the same time. Well, th that's the the concept of playing defense like this, the three down linemen, the multiple DBs kind of dropping eight, even though I don't really drop eight every single time, but we'll call it that for what it is, is keeping everything in front of you, forcing the team to like really work hard down the field and then, you know, make plays in the red zones, holding the field goals, and then assume that your offense is explosive enough to continue to outscore them, you know, pace by pace throughout the game. But we've seen it now – Really, this is the second time, and you could call it the third time, but guess this is the second time they've lost against a team with superior personnel where it just did not work. And it did not look like it was going to work from the first drive of the game. I mean, Alabama last year on the road 
was just talented enough to give the ball to Brian Robinson to run for six, seven yards of play. And then when it got down to the red zone, you know, that last year they were actually a pretty good red zone defensive yeah. team. Alabama was just simply better. This year they have been a bad red zone defensive team. So when LSU gets it down there, I mean, it is truly like they are going to have to mess up in order to not score a touchdown here. Uh, I mean, Auburn last last week, I mean, when they got in the red zone, it was like a touchdown. And it wasn't even competitive. I mean, we've seen it kind of this year that they have not been a good red zone team. So when your defensive scheme is, you know, conducive to you being a good red zone team and forcing <clears throat> forcing turnovers and sacks and, you know, limiting explosive plays and you can't do it, it it's not good. And it's not, it's not a uh, – me saying a partridge is bad at his job. He is not. This is a very similar scheme to what they ran last year. Last year, they were really good. I think they may have slightly better depth, but I don't think we did a great job of taking into account. You have to have star players. You have to have really good football players for this to work. And in my opinion, I didn't know it. I didn't know it yet, but I feel like we have a better idea now that they just aren't as talented on defense as we kind of thought they were. I think they play more guys. They have more guys that they trust, but not more elite guys. And uh, to, on Saturday, it was, just a, it was just a really, really bad, bad game from them. And I, it, it's tough to know what is going to get better on this side of the ball, especially now that they have some injuries at key players like Brown and especially A.J. I mean, that, it's, it's really, really tough there. Yeah, it, it is. And the red zone piece of it that you talk about, about them being a bad red zone team this year, that kind of speaks to what we're talking about. The three-man front, the kind of keep everything in front of you, bend, don't break. Well, last year in the red zone, clearly the field gets smaller. And so the offenses don't have enough space to work. And so when you have good tacklers like a Jake Springer or the linebackers we discussed, it made sense why, like, look, like you got to the Arkansas game last year and you're like, oh man, this could be a really bad defense again. And then those guys didn't really deserve the benefit of that at that point. But from what they actually became as players and what we know about them now, as we just talked about, like they're really good. And so they had really good tacklers that could close gaps and get to ball carries pretty quickly, particularly was in a run play. And I think that's a big difference in the red zone piece of it this year is they just don't have the Jake Springer, the Chance Campbell, the run stopping threat that they did, you know, when the field gets smaller. And I think that kind of crystallizes a large part of that issue. And then the other aspect of it is, as much as we've just talked about the linebackers, the defensive line was talked about a lot in the preseason, and I guess for pretty good reason about them finally having real SEC talent and, you know, some semblance of depth on that defensive line. And it just really hasn't happened. I, I, maybe they have more guys they can trust. I'm not an interior defensive line play expert by any means, but like, I mean, I don't know what Jamon Gordon's snap count was this time last year versus this time this year, but I feel like I see him on the field a decent bit more, which is not necessarily a good thing. And then really the main point of it is, is one, the star power you talk about, not having that pass rusher. They finally got Sam Williams to bring it on every single down last year. And it was just a problem. For and, a and a healthy Cedric Johnson. On the other side, exactly. Yeah. They don't have that. I, I would I would challenge you. I mentioned this on the postgame show last night. Who on the defensive line would you say has made an impact on a game where the announcers are talking about them, people are noticing them watching the game for the better part of four quarters? I can't think of a single guy. Like every now and then I'm thinking, oh, J.J. Bakis made a nice play there, or Cedric Johnson finally got back there. But outside of that, they don't really have anyone up front, despite the quote-unquote newfound depth, whatever you want to make of that at this point. 
they don't really have dudes that make consistent impacts on the game. I mean, Taiwan Malone, I I don't know how many snaps he played. I don't remember any place him being out there. That's not saying he's not. The whole point is just that I don't I don't notice him on the field. I didn't really notice a ton of Pagis. I didn't notice much of Cedric Johnson. The impact that Sam Williams had with Cedric Johnson opposite of him, it's just not there. And it kind of is the same way on the interior. I, I, Katie Hill, again, I, I would, I'd hate to say he's had a bad year without going back and actually looking at it. I don't think that's fair to say, but it doesn't feel like that he's kind of taken the next step up and they have a lot of that. And that's become a problem as well. You talk about the three man front, everyone asking why they don't put a second, you know, another defensive lineman down there. I don't that's think so that, much easier said than done right. in the middle of a game and stuff like that. Cause that, that changes a ton just to be like, okay, we're going, we're, you know, we're a four, three team now. It's like that, that's, you're they are these are good football coaches that are doing what they think gives you the best chance to win they are trying to limit you know what LSU does best with explosive plays and 1v1 balls with receivers um you are absolutely right and able to to you know kind of pick it apart after seeing a game like this but I it's so much easier said than done just to halfway through a game uh, put in a completely new package. I know you saw it against Vanderbilt, but they probably had like two coverages out of that, like, you know, two sets of stuff. LSU, they, you show that and like you don't have anything else to do with it. They're going to blow you out more than you already were. And the talent on the on the perimeter, I thought, screwed with Ole Miss a little bit. The playmakers that LSU had, right? You saw Daniels last week at Florida finally just say, all right, I guess I will start throwing it down the field. And, oh, the results are pretty good. So when you do the whole four-man thing, it changes the calculus from the secondary perspective. And Ole Miss didn't necessarily get, get beat deep on a ton of throws in this game. But I did think some of LSU's speed on the edge um, and the perimeter, particularly on the offensive side, bothered Ole Miss a little bit. And Davidson Igbenosin really had a tough game. And it just seemed like a lot of the nine to 12 yard passes were really there for LSU all day and Ole Miss couldn't all do about it. But like the, the, the defensive line part of it boils down to me is they just don't have enough really, I say enough, any impact guys that are just putting their stamp on a game, uh, you know, throughout the course of 60 minutes. And that's tough. And that, that speaks to a larger troubling issue. And, you know, we can get to the larger piece of the conversation in a minute about was this a one-off or is this a sign of things to come? I'd probably lean to the sign of things to come at this point just because, I don't know, like Chance Campbell, Mark Robinson aren't really walking through that door. And I know we use their name a ton in the first like 20 minutes of this podcast, but like that's – and Sam Williams, that's, that's a big issue, and I just don't see how that's getting fixed going forward. And, you know, whatever this team is, if they have slightly worse top-end linebackers, not much depth there, and the defensive line isn't up to snuff, I just don't know how that gets fixed over the next four games. Yeah, it sounds like I'm kind of turning my thoughts on the team because I, I've been pretty positive about the defense throughout the season. But I thought this was after, all, after Auburn, I was like, okay, you know, there's clearly at least a little bit of concern here. Then when you see it two weeks in a row, it's like, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And you kind of begin to dissect the, the actual personnel and you've, you've gotten a bigger, you know, chunk of games and a bigger, uh, you know, just – point of reference to look at now and it is it's pretty concerning I mean LSU's offensive line has not been great this year um they have two true freshman tackles that obviously has been talked about a lot both are incredibly talented players but have been wildly inconsistent and when you're watching that stadium and I I always end up watching offensive line you know more than the receivers running down the field I mean Campbell and Jones stoned 
Robinson and Ivy and who really whoever else it was for the entire game. I mean, there was no pass rush with the three-man front. And we've seen, I mean, Ole Miss last year get to the quarterback with three men. Uh, but what's even worse is we didn't get there on blitzes. I mean, that, that, that was, was huge concerning. The yeah, I mean, the LSU, the, the walk-on running that they have who, you know, isn't a great player, but it's absolutely serviceable. I mean, he, he's a really good pass blocker. Our guys did not get around him. And then when you're throwing more people than the offensive lineman has to block, you have to beat the running back, and they literally could not do it. Um, I mean, I, I, it's weird, but as it is to say, but we, we, we downgraded, you know, quite a few areas. In my opinion, now kind of seeing the full picture, I mean, going from Springer to, to Otis, even though, I mean, Otis is a good player, but I think for what the defense had last year, that seems to be, you know, a lesser. And then the linebackers we've talked about, the defensive line has more playable SEC guys, but impact guys, like you mentioned, I mean, no impact in that game. Really no impact in the Auburn game. I mean, Robbie Ashford ran into more sacks than we had. <laughs> um, I mean, which is which is sad to say. And I, I was confident with this group. I thought earlier in the year you saw them be incredibly physical, play really fast. I feel like they have looked, have looked so slow and so, like, I don't want to say soft because that's not the right word, but just like – I used it not yesterday. As, not as physical. How about that? Um in these last two games playing against, yes, Auburn offense is not good, but they have athletes. And Bigsby, you have to bring them down as a group. At LSU, they do have athletes. And it, it really, really, really showed. Yeah, I mean, I wrote before the game on the Friday newsletter that I thought this version of Ole Miss was better than LSU just across the board. And that was just dead wrong. I think LSU has more better players, more more better, good God, more good players than Ole Miss has. And I didn't necessarily think that would be the case. Probably, you know, if you're looking at the the math of it and say X, you know, this guy versus this guy versus this guy, it's all that we're talking about. The guys that we probably gave the benefit of the doubt to, I thought Ole Miss had a slight edge, and that just wasn't the case. LSU was better. I mean, outside of that, I mean, it speaks to it in the, the raw numbers. Outside of the first quarter, that was an ass-kicking for three quarters. And, you know, when you lose the line of scrimmage on both sides of the football, unless you're really opportunistic and get a bunch of turnovers and win that battle and kind of win a weird one, it's just hard to win consistently in the SEC or really in any league if you're losing up front at both lines of scrimmage. Football is a complicated game, but but if you want to boil it down to something simple, you can't. Like, you can't do that and win games in this league. And you mentioned the two freshman tackles. LSU had a pair of freshman tackles as well that held up, I thought, a lot better then Ole Misses did. I thought Michael Pettis really struggled in this game. And then, you know, that speaks to what Kiffin kind of led his press conference off with was, you know, LSU brings in Perkins. He was the number one rated linebacker, I think, in the country out of high school last year. You yeah. know, seemingly was swimming a little bit, but they had to play him a bunch because it just LSU was, you know, replenishing some talent on that side of the ball, brought in a bunch of transfers. And then it seems like they had, like, had a little bit – I haven't watched every LSU game, but had a little bit of a different role for him this time. He was a lot more around the line of scrimmage. He was much more of a pass rusher in this game. And, boy, did he smoke Ole Miss. I mean, Pettis is a talented kid, but it is just worth reminding that Ole Miss does have two freshman tackles. And I thought particularly on the right side of the offensive line with Pettis that that was really evident on Saturday because Perkins made an impact on that game. And it took a minute. But in the second half, they really hit Dart a bunch of times. And, you know, just the disparity from, again, both lines of scrimmage was so stark that clearly the better team won and won by a lot in that first quarter was just kind of a house of cards. Yeah, I mean, I think you listen to a lot of the the media from LSU and they kind of told you 
I mean, credit to them and Moscona and them. They told you how the game was going to play out. Yeah. And if you've watched a lot of LSU, they uh, they get down early in every single game. And then they find their groove and their rhythm. They come back. And it was kind of a question all week of what was on this counterpunch going to be. And, I mean, what we saw is they, they simply did not have one. And uh, the player, I mean, LSU's just depth, their athleticism just wore Ole Miss down from the second quarter on. And, you know, I think you mentioned earlier, I mean, I don't even think Dart played poorly, but he really just never had a chance with the way the line of scrimmage played out. Uh, it was tough. Uh, it, it, there was really no other great way to say it. I thought Dart played well. I mean, look, I don't think anyone's listening to this on a Monday, like looking for a silver lining after watching that game. But like, if you do want one, I thought Dart held up pretty well for what he, you know, the the hand he was dealt in that game. Early in that game, they came out throwing it a lot. I got a call from Buchanan like halfway through the second quarter and was like, I told you, this is what I was talking about. He's talking about how, you know, the lack of opportunity in the passing game is a lot on the play calling. And Ole Miss's credit, they came out throwing the football. I don't know how much was just picking on an LSU secondary. I don't know how much of it was the fact that they didn't have Zach Evans or just that's kind of what the game plan told him to do, and it was a mixture of both. Ole Miss threw the ball well, particularly early in the game. I mean, they hit that little corner route on the short side of the field. They threw it. Uh, he had a nice deep ball to Jonathan Mingo early in the game, and Ole Miss was having success throwing the football. I didn't really think of this, a lot of the success in the second half throwing the football had anything to do with Dart or the receivers. It was more so the offensive line, the fact that Ole Miss couldn't kind of establish a consistent running game, and then the fact clearly after you know a couple possessions they were chasing the game, and so. From that standpoint, I thought Ole Miss was actually decent in that regard. It just didn't really matter because of everything else against them. And so it, it, it it's interesting because I guess as we flip the conversation to the offensive side of the ball, you talk about Moscona and all those LSU media kind of telling you how the game was going to go. I guess from the Ole Miss side of it, the one counter would be, well, I don't think LSU can stop the run. And so Ole Miss will continue to run it down their throats to control the game play, I'd say play ball control, but just have a little bit of less of disparity in time of possession. <laughs> that just didn't happen. Ole Miss ran for 116 yards in this game, but it took a bunch of work. I think it was a little under three and a half yards per carry for a team that prides itself on running the football. And that being kind of the core of your offense, that's just not going to cut it. And not having Evans clearly hurt, right? I mean, it was basically only the Quinshawn Judkins show with Jackson dart runs mixed in, right? I mean, you saw Bentley for a couple snaps. He had a sighting early in the first half and then they had him on one series just in the third quarter. He gets to like a three yard loss. And then Ole Miss was, that felt like a big turning point in the game where it's like, Oh, Ole Miss is really chasing it here. So not having Evans clearly hurts, right? When you have that compliment to Judkins and you kind of have the two headed monster that makes your running game a lot stronger but if you're going to be a good team that's a, a West contender, you have to be a lot better than just not, you know, one running back being missing cannot be that drastic of a difference in this game. And the fact that it was, I think, kind of speaks to probably the now altered expectations of this team. So I don't even really have an end point in all of that. I just thought the fact that them not having Evans clearly hurt, but the inability to compensate that collectively, not just the offensive side, but the defensive side too, kind of exposed the thinness of this team and them not just having not having as many bullets in the chamber as we maybe thought. I think that's very fair. I mean, I think losing Zach it, for this game was pretty huge. Um, you know, Quinn Sean's a great player. And played well. He is, he is a true freshman who got – he doesn't need to be a 28-carry uh, guy at this Aren't point. Aren't those days just kind of over? 
I mean, Derrick Henry was kind of an anomaly, but just to ha- I mean, particularly true freshman, everything you said is true, but just the, that that idea in general is kind of long gone, isn't it? Right. You have to have some balance, you know, two guys that can do it, and Evans and Judkins have been so dynamic together that, you know, losing one of those guys and then, you know, Bentley, he either isn't healthy yet or just kind of isn't that kind of player between the tackles guy. So you really only have one running back. Uh, Dart is a good runner, but when they had when they finally put Perkins in, I mean that completely negated him. I mean Perkins compared to him athletically was just a clear mismatch. Um, so you know that was really tough. I mean they I, I know the numbers look decent in running, but uh, it didn't feel decent. It, it felt really really hard earned runs, um, and they came out you know smoke I mean, kind of on fire throwing the ball around, and that was going to be their recipe to win. I, I think. You know, Kiffin knew that, you know, LSU was going to take away what you do best and force you to do something else. But, you know, the matter of the fact is that they couldn't block, so they basically took away both. You know, that they weren't getting a lot of, you know, chunk yards on the ground. And then, you know, after that, uh, those first two or three drives, their inability to block Ojolari and Gay and Perkins kind of negated their ability to exploit the LSU DBs. And, you know, I think Ole Miss's wide receivers, I mean, they got open, and they got open pretty often. Uh, I mean, I think one of the biggest plays in the game, I don't even know if I've mentioned this yet, but, you know, it's it's 17 to 10 and Mingo is streaking and Dart misses him deep. Yep. Uh, it was going to be a touchdown. And, you know, it's just small, simple plays like that that can come back to haunt you. And, you know, I, I still don't think it would have changed the outcome of this game, but it just it does change, you know, the chemistry on what LSU has to do, the math, what LSU has to do on offense. It gives them another opportunity to – to possibly make a mistake or no, or not, don't score a touchdown while you continue to, you know, to play, uh, to play, you know, catch up, I guess you could say. Um, it, it was tough all around. It really offensively, it looked out of sorts, you know, once it went off script. And is that a product of, you know, like you said, the lack of bullets we thought they had? Is it, you know, their conservative play calling. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's hard to, it's hard to say. It felt like they kind of got away from some of those really, you know, complex running schemes and they were going to a lot more simple inside zone in the second half and just really not having any success. And, you know, was that part of the game plan because they knew they were going to have to throw the ball to win? Uh, was it because, you know, Judkins – you know, just was getting exhausted, just had to be more simplistic. I, I don't know, but it was not great. No, it wasn't. And then you talk about kind of the harder running yards. I mean, they only had 112 yards of offense total in the second half. 32 of those were rushing. So 84 of the total yards they had on the ground came in the second half. And, you know, it's worth reminding, they weren't chasing the game for the entire second half. That was a ball game going into the fourth quarter until the game got away from them. And they just couldn't do a ton offensively. They've been a really, really damn good third down team offensively coming into this game. They finished the game four of 12, which is not great, but also not just completely horrendous, but one of five in the second half, which is just not going to give you a, a, a huge shot to kind of stay in. What, what was L, what was LSU on third down? Do you have that in front of you? Because I don't think it was wildly impressive, if I remember. It was so LSU was six of 55 percent. So That's good, pretty good. They were th- they were three of eight. They were three of eight. I saw on the uh, on kind of like the score line at one point, um, like when Ole Miss was still up. So like they never got to third down a lot, but when they did, you know, they weren't great on it. And kind of going back to the defense, you know, when you're talking about second and five every time like that 
is just such a problem. I, I'm kind of going all over the place thinking about this game, but there were just so many kind of glaring issues with, with how this played out. Yeah, LSU was only one of four in the first half. So that three of eight yeah, was at yeah. one point in the third quarter, and then they finish at 55%. That kind of speaks to it. Now, that stat in the first half is a little misleading because they didn't really face a ton of third downs. They moved Right, it's not even a good thing necessarily. Right, when you only face four of them, that's actually usually an, an indictment on, on your defense. And so, yeah, I mean, look at – I mean, I guess the last real thing we can address in this game is on top of everything that went wrong, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, those crucial plays, Right the dart interception when they get down in the red zone, the missed deep ball that Kiffin, I, I thought this was hilarious. I didn't, not necessarily making fun of him, but it was just kind of funny that he mentioned the wind. They were throwing downwind there. <laughs> he mentioned that on his halftime TV interview. And I was like, oh, we got Aaron Boone in the house here. This guy's blaming the wind. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. throw. You know, that was nine feet by the guy. The wind maybe contributed a little bit, but I, uh, I don't think that was the reason for, uh, for that one. I just thought that was kind of a funny moment at halftime of that game. But on top of that, the fact that they didn't force any turnovers and then those swing plays in the game, I felt like Ole Miss lost a lot of them. That that dart interception, it looked like he got hit on the throw. So it's not like, a, oh, what was he doing? Terrible ball type of thing. He just got hit. The pass rush didn't necessarily hold up. But that was a huge swing and a huge pick. And honestly, at that point, when he, you know, they, that would have been for a go-ahead touchdown. And I was like, okay, if they can get seven points here and go up, I guess that would have been like 27, 24 don't, I don't remember exactly what the situation was score-wise, but okay, can they just get to the final 13 minutes of this game within three and try to find a way to steal one? And that's what this felt, game felt like if they get hit on those plays, which speaks to them being the inferior team and that being a little bit of a mismatch from a talent standpoint. They didn't make those either. They, they, they missed on some crucial downs, and then they didn't force any turnovers. I mean, they lost the turnover battle. It wasn't anything obsess obsessively insane by the offense. But the fact that they didn't create any turnovers on top of the defensive performance, I guess it's not a stat, but I guess my point is, is like the, the crucial plays in the game, LSU won a hell of a lot more of them. Yeah, I think another kind of other aspect about this game was, was kind of just, you know, we're seven, eight games into this season, and there's been a lot of guys we thought were going to be contributors for this team who just, like, simply have not been. And I think we – it's hard to get super disappointed about Ole Miss being seven and one, but when you raise the level of the program, you raise the expectations, and that's that comes with it. Um, the portal has been much more 50-50 this year, I would say, than – last year where it felt like the contributors really came in and were just massively important. Um, Jalen Robinson's been a complete zero. Uh, Jalen Knox is still to me a ghost. <laughs> uh, we don't know if uh, we maybe, need a wellness check. That's the whole, like, we talked about this a bunch. Is he alive? I don't know. Yeah. In Asia? Um, completely agree. I, he, total, total zero. Um, you know, Mason Brooks sounds like a great kid and a great guy has been entertaining and, you know, so, somewhat of a leader on that offensive line does not play. Um, you let Lucy's Bentley has been hurt, but he really, you know, does not play. You know, signed to safety from Vanderbilt. Don't know if they really expect him to be a huge, huge contributor, but has not played. Uh, it, Kari Coleman has been kind of swimming. He started off hot, but you know, got a little nicked up and kind of has been up and down to say the least. And, you know, if we're going to do the, you know, this deal of, of roster building this way, and, you know, when, when you have 50, 50 guys, you're expecting to contribute highly and they don't not including the fact that some of the, the high school guys that they've signed the, the past year or two 
like haven't really shown up as either it's it's it reared its ugly head in a, in a pretty big way uh, on Saturday. So I, I think that become starts to become a questioning uh, of the it's hard to question who, what, or why. Um, I, for me, it's not always like, a, oh, the assistant coach, you know, there's always the Derek Nix conversation, which is ridiculous. But uh, what, do they need to adjust at least something? Because, you know, it feels like they have more depth. But, you know, the more we look at it and the way some of these games have, have turned out, it's like, do we really know what they actually do? So it, it's something to at least look at going forward with the way they've built. And it seems like they're recruiting well, but – if they're going to go portal heavy again, you know, it's like, are, is this going to be a year by year thing? You got to hit more. Yep. And you got to build depth and that to a certain point, And this is a conversation for another day kind of speaks to still, even if they're really good in the portal that you're really only going to build real depth through recruiting high school guys. And they're doing that seemingly, as you pointed out pretty well so far, I saw they got a commitment. I'm not a huge recruiting guy this time of the year, four-star kid the other weekend, but I did see Burks. the like, yeah, yeah like, a really, oh, really good player. I went and watched his stuff for fun. Really, really good. Yeah, something like seven of the ten guys they currently have committed are consensus four-stars, which is good. But that wasn't the case last year, and so that depth is not there. And I guess to kind of put a bow on this thing, because there's no real point of, like, going through the game. I mean, everyone watched it. It was what it was. The last point on this is probably the conversation that I brought up at the top. Was this a one-off, or was this more of a sign of things to come? Was this foreboding of what's going to be the case? Um you know, over the final four games of the season with the bye week mixed in. I Chase asked me this question kind of point blank on the post-game show last night. I thought this loss was really telling in a lot of ways. And I get college football has become this very strange week-to-week sport where one team looks awesome one week, terrible the next, and it's, it's becoming increasingly hard to figure out for a multitude of reasons. And so I guess Ole Miss could fix this. This could be just a bad day in Baton Rouge. But I lean heavily toward the side of this is a foreboding sign of things to come for all of the reasons we just outlined. I don't know necessarily how they're going to fix the run defense to the point that it needs to be to be competitive against Alabama. Hell, against A&M, as bad as they look, against Arkansas. Mississippi State's not going to run it, so congrats on their luck there. But everything else in totality, combined with the offensive line and the two freshman tackles in the exterior, I just don't see it getting better in totality at this point in the season with four games left to where I side with very heavily at this point, leaving the opportunity open for me to be totally wrong. But I thought this was a foreboding sign that told a lot more about this team than just a bad Saturday afternoon in a hostile environment. Where do you land on this? It's tough to say. I mean, if you're looking game by game and and looking towards next week, which I think this team definitely is and needs to do. Um, they have no excuse to lose to Texas a In my opinion, yeah. you have absolutely no excuse to lose that team. That's that's not a good football team. Um, if they end up losing that game, then, then there's some real, real questions of this team might be a seven and five team and everything that every national person has said about the soft schedule and their their frauds could, could be true. Um, I'm not sure I'm on that boat yet. Um, I, I do trust these coaches to kind of look at this and be like, okay, like, you know, like I said earlier, fool me once, fool me twice. Like something will have to change defensively. Um, will it be a full sale scheme change? I don't think so, but there's going to have to be minor adjustments or even major adjustments to, to make sure what happened on Saturday does not happen again, or at least to a lesser degree. 
I mean, Bama is what Bama is, but you're playing uh, two other good offenses after that that are going to present pretty pretty interesting problems in, in different kinds of ways. Um, so I, it's tough to say. I mean, th- there was definitely a lot of bad on Saturday. And uh, another point that I've kind of brought up a few times is I, I really have not been super, super impressed with the way Kiffin's teams have played on the road. Yeah. And that, that is very nervous against Texas a I mean, the last four games they've lost have been away from home, whether it was a Sugar Bowl, which is an anomaly, but Bama and Auburn – and, and now this game, and then, you know, even going back to 2020, Arkansas, they've had some really bad games on the road. And there is context to every individual game. So, you know, things are different in different ways, obviously. Um, but they have another big road test coming this weekend. I mean, Kyle Field will still be Kyle Field. The cold always shows up. So it'll be a good atmosphere. I was at the LSU game. This is not, you know, sore butt hurt me, but it was not that great of an atmosphere. I was going to ask you this next, because we talked about it, Tennessee. I got reports of a lot of empty seats. It was not. It, it wasn't anything impressive. It, it's it's nothing that I grew up going to see. I've been to more LSU games than probably anybody listening to this podcast. I've seen great two thirty environments. I mean, twenty eighteen Georgia was the most one of the most insane LSU games I've ever been to. Uh, this was nothing special. The atmosphere did not beat this team. Uh, the other team beat this team uh, pretty heavily as we've talked about throughout this deal. So uh, next week could be very different. Uh, that place, you know, for whatever, for all its, its flaws uh, is usually packed and it's usually pretty loud. And, you know, of course, Tiger Stadium is can be too, but uh, they're going to have to play a lot better on the road. It, it's just a straight up fact. I don't care what their, you know, their record against the spread is for home versus away. The losses have all come becoming on the road and, and some of them have been pretty, uh, uninspiring fashion. So I think that's something they may need to look at too. It does feel like Kiffin plays a much more conservative offensive game plan on the road. And I understand that from some standpoints, but I can't answer why, but I remember watching the Auburn game last year and I, obviously they had injuries. I understand that completely. Uh, but at the end of the day, you had Matt Corral, two really good running backs, um, I mean, it, it just was kind of weird. And when they were healthy against Alabama, it was like, this is, this doesn't, it doesn't look like what they do at home. And when you saw those first three drives against Auburn, you're like, a lot of this stuff is just different. It just looks different. And I, I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's a very simplistic way of looking at it. And I even could be wrong. Maybe they're doing even more complicated stuff on the road. I don't, I mean, I could be wrong, but it doesn't look like it. And on Saturday, I was pretty damn locked in. And it just, it was just not a great performance. It's not the end of the world at all. And uh, I I would lean towards, you know, believing that this team does have talent and that they can fix this and that, you know, a lot of these games coming up, they absolutely can win. Uh, But it's understandable to have the reaction that this was not good and that, that that's okay. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. We'll get back to Weldon Rodenberg in just a second, but first I want to take Quick break to remind you the podcast is brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Best butcher shop in the world. Jim of a human. LB's Greg, man in the ship there. If you're a Rippy Ride subscriber, that's rippyrides.substack.com. You're moments away from getting a Monday newsletter from me dissecting this loss. But also you get discounted meats. You get a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's one hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. Just show Greg proof of subscription and he'll get you set up. Then go find your own favorites. LB's is an incredible place. To kick off your grilling weekend, it is a uh, – weather's getting better. Everything's looking a little cooler outside. Throw something on the grill. Why not assure that it's going to be awesome? Greg wants to make sure whatever it is you need, he has it or he will get it for you. That's why he's the best in the business in Oxford. Check him out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a like a I won't say touchy like subject, but like it is a complex subject in that sense. Is are you right? They are a different team on the road a lot, but like the other side of that coin is you just and as you articulated, this is not like a disagreement anyway. They didn't lose on Saturday because they succumbed to the scene and the stage. Like absolutely they, not. Like absolutely. they they, they were fine in that sense. They just weren't good enough as a football team. And that's the more damning piece of it. If they had lost this game, like say Mississippi State lost it to where they just kind of, you know, peed down their leg in the second half. And whether that was the stage or the environment or not, and you felt like you let one get away. I thought this would be a much different conversation, but the 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 butt kicking that they took for three quarters is almost more damning. It would almost be better if Ole Miss had been in that game. Spoiler alert, you know, close loss better than a non-close loss. But just the fact that you could chalk it up to, eh, they just weren't quite built for it, had a couple turnovers late, and they just didn't do enough things to win the game. They just got thoroughly butt-kicked by a team that I didn't think was as good as Ole Miss, but clearly was much, much better. And I think that speaks to kind of the question overall that we posed and that we seem to agree on. It's just this was probably a sign of more foreboding things to come. The last thing before we get to, like, the future part of it and then got to bounce around the SEC, I'd be remiss if we didn't at least talk about the tight end aspect of it. 
I don't want to dump on the kid too much, but that Casey Kelly drop in the third quarter felt really crucial on the third down to where if he catches it at the sticks, they keep the drive going. I'm not saying it changed the game. I'm not saying it changed the outcome of the game, but that felt big. And it's important from the sense that they did lose Michael Trigg, who swimming, whatever you want to think of his year, even when he was healthy, is more athletic, is a better pass catcher, and is more of a threat. And Kiffin... Granted, he hasn't used to tight end a ton in the last two seasons after the Kenny Yaboa five-game stretch um, there in 2020. It is something, like, that's another aspect of it. Like, Kelly did not play well in this game. He had the legal man downfield. I didn't necessarily think that was his fault, per se. It looked like he maybe thought the ball was caught behind the line of scrimmage, but it wasn't, and so he's nine yards down the field blocking. But that coupled with the fact that he just didn't seem to be able to catch the football very consistently is is a tough one. And, you know, we've... I don't know if we've minimized the trig loss by any stretch of the imagination, but it hasn't been talked about as a very like detrimental one. And just, I don't know, you kind of saw that on display, you know, all the small chinks in the armor. I feel like that's another one, not having trig and having to go play Casey Kelly. That was clearly a huge drop off. And the other, like the, the thing that's interesting to me is like, that's really, that's clearly it. Like it, Kyron Heath was playing at Mansfield legacy out here in Dallas where uh, wherever he was last year, like it, it's the Casey Kelly show until Trigg gets healthy. And that's just another component in the passing game. And it was some run blocking stuff they don't have because he really struggled. Yeah. And he's the only guy you have. Right. Uh, the I, only. Mean, that, I think that's as from a, just a roster building standpoint, especially when you have an offense where you've seen Weiss and Kiffin, you know, really have the tight end be a pretty focal part and then not have any on the roster that can be that. Um, is another question to ask. I mean, uh, losing Trigg was probably a lot bigger of a loss than I think any of us are giving credit for. And I, you know, probably was giving a little too much credit to Kelly for some of the plays that he's made in the past. But, you know, this is a few games in a row now where he has just not been effective, you know, through the air blocking. I mean, it's just not been great. Um, now, I mean, I, at the game, you know, he, yeah, he dropped that ball and the you know, defender had his arm in there or whatever. And, you know, you just got to make a play. But even then, like, that was a pressure, you know, f- forced throw. And if Dart kind of – was a little bit behind him. I'm not giving Kelly, you know, too much of an excuse. But, you know, you throw it like one yard in front of him where the defender's not – you know, doesn't get his arm in there. He probably makes that catch, maybe at least. Um, but, you know, th- there's better athletes and better guys that absolutely can make that catch. And then, of course – now, the fact that you only have one tight end, you really can't even go four wide receivers. Right. You haven't had four wide receivers that have shown that they're ready to play yet, which is just another, you know, issue. You with the whole, yeah, you, you really have had two. And I, I think Watkins has played well in spurts. Yeah, absolutely. that's kind of, it's three. three it's it's three. three. You know, Watkins has been really good. He, he's been uh, one of the positives uh, from the portal. Um it's hard to say. I mean, we're all looking to nitpick at all the negatives after this game. And I think somewhat rightfully so, because it was a game that, you know, we thought Ole Miss had a team that was absolutely prepared and ready to, to play and win this game. And, you know, the way they played, it kind of begins to open your eyes to some things that, you know, maybe we, we kind of refuse to do so at this point. Um, and they're going to have to fix them because A&M, that's not, like I said, it's not a good football team. But it looks like they're going to play the five-star freshman next week. He played against South Carolina in, in a pretty impossible position uh, and didn't look great. But what I can tell you is the kid's a, kid's a good athlete. 
he can make plays with his feet. He has a cannon for an arm. At least he did in high school. We'll see how that translates uh, to college. But that's a complete unknown, and that's going to be something very difficult to uh, to prepare for. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's just weird. I mean, you're going to get a heavy dose of A-chain. Like, you better be able to stop the run. Um, A&M, you know, they're really bad offensively, but they've got three damn talented receivers that if you give them the opportunity to make plays, they are capable of doing it. Um, you know, it's weird saying all this, having watched them, like, not score 24 points against teams, but I've seen those guys make really impressive plays. Uh, Evan Stewart and Chris Marshall are dudes. Uh, they have just consistently not been very good on that side of the ball. Uh, but if you give them the opportunity to run the ball well, that opens up everything is what, kind of what I'm trying to say. And they're, they uh, are capable of doing something with it. So it's not going to be an easy game. But if you're the program you kind of think you are, the, the program that you've built to this point, it's a game you should win. And I think that if they do not win that game, you know, not to be too hyperbolic, but you, then you really kind of have to look at the way this roster was constructed, the way this, you know, the schemes have been created and really kind of dissect, okay, what do we really have going on here? Yeah, you're exactly right. And the last piece on the tight end part of it, I, I saw a tweet from a fan account. Um, I had no clue if they listen to the show. This is not necessarily making fun of them, but you know, everyone was mad at the Casey Kelly part of it. It's like the emotional part of fans watching a game. He gets the drop. People are pissed. But I like, saw this tweet. I know exactly the one you're about. Yeah, to it's about. a screenshot of the rest of the tight ends on the roster that aren't trig. It said it's time. And the you know the list. I'll just go down it. We talked about that. Uh, we did this two weeks ago or three weeks ago. And trig got injured. It's Kyron Heath, Trace Campbell, a kid named Landon Thomason, someone named Salethiel Hempill. Jonathan Hesp, I think, has a broken leg. Yeah. Hudson Wolf. Like, it's not time for anything. That's the whole point. Yeah, there that's the no big issue. And it's it, that the, the really the crux of it, like I mentioned earlier, it's that if you're not going to have a playmaker at tight end, you have to have someone be serviceable. Right. Or you have to adjust to different stuff like going four wide. Or something that I have not seen this year, which honestly is surprising, but two, two running backs in the backfield. Uh, I think Bentley not being healthy has contributed to some of that. But even when he was, they didn't do a lot of running back stuff out of the backfield to supplement the passing game at all. Yeah, and like I said, a lot of that's easier said than done. And maybe it's not conducive to them being successful in offense to do that. But it just hampers your ability to be even more multiple than you can be. And, you know, Kelly and now it's it's honestly getting in his head. And it's just a weird, weird dynamic of I do think this team is good. But I've seen two weeks in a row of them not be very good. So it's it's hard for me to figure out which one it is. Uh, this game leads me to believe that it's kind of exactly what we thought in the beginning of the season. This team was eight and four, you know, seven, five at the worst, uh, nine and three at the best. That's still absolutely in play. Uh, but it, it's just a lot more concerning than even I thought it would be coming out of this week. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I don't, I think they'll beat Mississippi state. I think there's an outside chance they could, you know, lose the Alabama game and find a way to win the two road games and you get the back-to-back 10 win seasons. But that leads us into what I wanted to get to next is what is the actual conversation with this team? Because I think after the Kentucky game, maybe it was Auburn. I don't remember. Was the kind of the first time I really opened up of like, all right, can this team win the West? They're three, and zero. you're in like the fourth weekend in October. Um, and they are in top of the first place of the West. Again, we talked about the schedule. I don't need to rehash that again. Now it feels kind of silly with the way they played, and that's an average LSU team that they just weren't as good as, uh, you know, top to bottom. 
And so, you know, whatever you, you do this long enough, you're going to be, uh, you know, dead wrong on a lot of different stuff. Like I don't necessarily feel bad for bringing the conversation up by any stretch, but that does feel like a conversation that needs to be shoved down the tube, right? Like Ole Miss does technically control their own destiny, right? You went out, everything's still on the table, but that's not really a responsible conversation to have today after watching what you watch from an eye test perspective beyond the final score against LSU. And so, Again, everything, I guess, is still technically on the table. You you win at A&M, and all of a sudden you have three games left where you do control your own destiny. But I think probably like the, the crux of this conversation is the fact that that team, and I talked about this with a couple of people over text on Saturday night, the team that you saw on Saturday loses to Alabama about two to three touchdowns, do they not? Even though that game's home, I mean, it's three plus, I think, if it's in Tuscaloosa. But that's a team that's 17 to 24 points worse than Alabama on paper is kind of what probably boils that conversation down to more than anything else. So like, it's just one game again, without getting too reactive, but I do think this game rightfully shifts the conversation about, you know, the West, whatever all this is and the expectations of this team a great deal. And I don't feel like that's an overreaction. How do you view this team this year um, kind of, you know, through the macro lens of these final four games and what this team is in Lane Kiffin's third year? I think it's all about next week. I really do think it's all about next week. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you believe you are the team and you have become the program that you think you are and that Lane, you know, at least in the beginning of the season, thought that he had, you beat Texas A&M next week. I don't care about the helmet. I don't care how expensive that team is. I believe you are better than them. And even more than that, I just think they are not very good. They have very good players. That is well known. I literally know every single player on that defense from recruiting. Uh, they were all wildly talented, but that team, that team is not good. If you don't beat them, I think you begin to have a more serious question about this program. You know, the, you know, the expectations, the, the, the heights that it could get to and all of that. Um, so it, it's tough. Like, like, you know, I don't think, it's necessarily too fair or realistic or necessary to have sweeping negative reactions of a team that is seven and one. Now we kind of are in this podcast, but that's kind of what we do. So, you know, it is what it is. You know, we have the right to, to kind of, you know, make these kind of judgments and whatnot because uh, I'm paid the big bucks to come on here to do so. Uh, <laughs> uh, so like, it's all about next week. How do you rebound? Can you play better on the road? Can you make the necessary adjustments to get the best out of the players that you have? Are you capable of getting anything out of the players that have yet to show up? Um, do you challenge some of these players? Do you throw them in the fire and see what you have? I, I'm fascinated to see what comes out on Saturday. Um, you know, how healthy are you? Well, what's your team like? I mean, you're about to go into a bye week and, you know, situationally games before a bye week are not great situational spots for football teams. Uh, because they're, you know, they're ready to get there. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I'm not ready to have, you know, the full on, you know, program dynamic conversation yet, because I don't think that's necessarily fair after just one loss. Uh, but like I said, next week will be uh, really big at that point. Well, and that's the other piece of this, too, is if we do get into the program piece of it, it is year pet three. Economics savings right? lesson three. Well, we got the an ad going here. Pet care and what have I done? Care is Sorry, care we got, I pulled up. Me? Yeah, no, no, that's me. I pulled up some ESPN stats on the South Carolina game and uh, I got you. flow from progressive for a second. But uh, anyway, back up. We're back on the stream here. Um, the 
the conversation about the, the program as it is, it's worth reminding people that it is year three. And you lose a incredibly talented quarterback that had been the, the rock of the first two years of this build in Matt Corral. They lost a lot off of that defense, right? And so if you look at the big picture aspect of it is, even if this thing does finish eight and four, I think seven and five losing last five in a row, just as a week to week business as this is, would change it immensely. I, I think even eight and four would be a ton different, particularly if you win the Egg Bowl, is a ton different than the seven and five and you actually do go seven and zero oh and zero oh and five in the last five weeks. I think that's drastically different. I do think Ole Miss will win at least one of these games coming down the stretch. I don't see zero oh and five. I'd probably conservatively still say nine and three. And that's a pretty good mark to get to three years in the program to go 10 and two and nine and three with a new quarterback and a whole lot of new pieces on the team as a whole. So from that standpoint of it is as bad as this feels the probably the false sense of raised expectations in this year alone, it does seem like they have a quarterback that is, you know, primed for big moments, primed to play well at games against quality opponents. They have a good quarterback, a good quarterback. That's they have a good quarterback. I don't care. Dart is good. He and, does some silly things, but he is a good quarterback. He's frankly, he's better than Corral has been in the 2020 season. And look, that's weird in a lot of senses because of COVID, you know, all that. But just in terms of decision making and taking care of the ball and all that, he's actually had a better campaign than I, I think than Corral had in 2020. But that's kind of my point is like, as bad as this feels, as bad as like, okay, they're not as good as you think they are this year, it's still in an incredibly healthy place. I just think, and this is a conversation that we'll have at the end of the season, I'm sure. But I just think, okay, you have the quarterback. You're going to have the both running backs, I think, at least for another year. What can they do to replenish the talent and build better depth on the defensive side of the football, get better at receiver, and ensure the offensive line is not a liability? That's kind of how they take the next step, right? They have the quarterback. How can you build a better, more complete defense and get him a little bit better weapons in the two, you know, the next two years that he's have going to play at Ole Miss? That's kind of the interesting piece of it to me. Like, it's not a bad place to be, I guess, is the point is what I'm trying to get at in all of this, despite the loss feeling so bad. It's still only year three. Yeah, it's this team on, on really both sides of the ball feels like they are being forced to scheme it all up. Some people pick, pick them to go six and six. It's worth reminding people. Yeah, they have to scheme it up on both sides. They have to, you know, scheme up some, some six shit on offense they have to play a defense that is you know, relatively scheme dependent because that's the best way for them to win football games. In year four of this tenure, you need to feel like you have a roster to where not everything has to be schemed up. You know, obviously, of course, it. you have a plan, you have an identity, you have to do what you do, but the Jimmys and Joes have to be improved. And, you know, I think slowly but surely they're doing that. Uh, right, but, Ivy's got another year or two. Like they do have some guys that have more years to play, but it's got to get better from high school recruiting too. A hundred percent. It was it was always my you know concern with the portal is that these guys are basically just you know they're one year guys, they're one year free agents for the most part. Uh, that especially the ones that they have tried to get because they want to have guys who have played significant snaps that they believe are going to contribute, you know, significantly, significantly. And I believe that is the right way to go about the portal, but there it's a double-edged sword because when you lose them, you have to replenish them. And, you know, high school recruiting has been at least the year before, not great, not a whole lot of contributors. Um, now that's the SEC. It's not easy to play as a true freshman, but there are positions 
where it, it isn't that difficult. And, you know, right wide receiver is one of those running back is one of those. If you're a dude, you get to play. And a lot of those guys have kind of just not played. And, you know, there's guys I have a lot of faith in. I think Larry Simmons and Jeremiah Dillon are, can be good football players. Uh, but at least to me, it's a little concerning that you've, you don't have the best depth at wide receiver and those guys cannot step onto the field. Um, they haven't got a high school receiver that's played. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that, that's a little, it's a little concerning. I would say, I mean, you got even freaking Alabama has like four freshmen that are out there playing, you know, that it's not their best group they've ever had, but they're out there and, you know, they make plays here and there uh, for sure. So the roster construction is is a point to cover, I think, especially, you know, kind of looking at how this season ends. Um, that's a large long-term conversation. But the AM game is the most important thing right now. So that that kind of conversation can rest for, for at least for another week. Sure. And it's I mean, you talk about contributors, it's basically Benison and uh Judkins, that's it, right? They don't really have anyone else that's ready to play right now. And so that, I think that's something to monitor kind of going forward from a big picture standpoint. Let's get around the SEC before we get to soccer corner and get out of here. Let's just start with the opponent they have next week. South Carolina beats Texas A&M at home. Um, it's an unmitigated disaster in College Station with Jimbo Fisher right now. And I think this is an interesting setup leading into this game because you know, that's a must win for Jimbo Fisher and A&M just from a sheer pride standpoint. For Ole Miss, it's a must win from a what kind of program are you in this current moment standpoint, as I thought you articulated very well, you know, to multiple points throughout this pod. That game, you know, A&M's offense, as bad as they've been, they're not, I mean, they, they've been competent at times, right? I thought they were competent against Alabama. They had spurts of competence in this game. But they got behind early in this game because South Carolina takes the opening kickoff for the touchdown. They immediately throw an interception. They're down, what, 14-0 or 10-0 or whatever it is. I mean, really felt like 17-0 before he even had a time to take a breath and was like, whoa, this game started. And just never had a chance to crawl out of that hole. It, I guess we'll start with the AM aspect before we get to the old Miss, like how, what this means for Ole Miss in this coming week. Oh, my God. I mean, th- this is a guy that would be fired if he does not have a $95 million contract and really any other scenario. We talked about how expensive they are. I get they've had quarterback issues. But, like, beyond that, th- th- this is this is unbelievable to me. I get, okay, eight, Texas 8-4 eight and four instead of A&M. Hilarious meme. I get it. Like, I, I get the overrated piece of it. But they can't go on the road and beat that South Carolina team that they're just that drastically more talented than. Oh, my goodness, that was a disaster. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't matter how talented you are. If you give them, you know, spot them 17 points before you blink, pretty similar to, you know, the way that, that LSU spotted Tennessee. Uh, oh, my God. Sorry, I watched the Pelicans game, too. If if you spot a really good fo- – or not even a really good – any football team 17, 10 points before you can blink, I mean, it's not going to be a good outcome. And it's kind of a weird game where – the score wasn't necessarily totally indicative to to kind of how the game flow was because once it all settled down, uh, they, they kind of you know South Carolina really like didn't play very well. Rattler was terrible. AM was better uh, for like two and a half quarters. It just didn't for like two and a half or three quarters um, because they just have so much better players in South Carolina. Uh, but that's what bad teams do is they give you opportunities to win football games, and A and M has done that consistently this year. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to explain. I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, you just look up and down that roster. I would say with the exception of the offensive line, which has played pretty poorly, 
uh, I would say, I mean, it is just dude after dude after dude. But at two of the most important positions, quarterback and offensive line, they've been really bad. I mean, I don't know if you saw, but like they had this like freak snap play that like literally was just it was terrible. And South Carolina just recovers it. They score the next play, the interception, they score the next drive. I mean, it was just, you know, a calamity of errors on their part. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, they, they are not a good football team, but they sure as hell are talented. And there is no denying that. I promise you they are. I promise you that they are. Uh, but they are poorly coached. Their offensive scheme is bad. Uh, they make a ton of mistakes. They blow coverages. You know, it's, it's all of the above, really, for them. So, uh, I mean, you know, we got to say, I'll say it a million times. If, if, if you're the program you think you are, the team you think you have, the coach you think you are, you go there and you beat them. Uh, and there's really no excuse not to. Uh, on the South Carolina end of it, uh, I think that team is decent. Uh, I make fun of Shane Beamer a lot. And, you know, I'll watch I that. like him. I do like him. You know, I watched the entire game. And, of course, you know, the family storm on the field again. And, you know, that's just kind of how – that's just who he is. How he rolls. He is wildly comfortable with that. Um, they have a lot more athletes than they had last year. They, they are slowly but surely building that, you know, roster comfortably. Uh, you know, Marshawn Lloyd, that running back they have, who was injured all of last year, he is an absolute dog. I mean, he is – he is one of the most violent runners I've seen watch play play all year, and they should give him the football a lot more. Um, I don't know how good they are. They're going to win a few more games. They still got Missouri, I believe. I think they still have Vanderbilt. Um, I mean, they have Clemson, who's, who's probably better than them and will beat them. But There's an outside path to them go nine and three, a very outside There is. There absolutely is. Um, you know, they don't – their dip, most difficult games are kind of out of the way, and, uh, you know, I, I thought it was kind of odd. That was the first time they had beaten AM since they entered the SEC. And um, that's that's pretty tough state of affairs over there. So good for them. I, I find myself, maybe it's because South Carolina has, you know, had no rivalry with old LSU growing up and, you know, no really significant rivalry with Ole Miss. I find myself cheering for them. I feel that they are they are a non-issue, so I can like them. Um, and I love Spurrier. And when he was there, they were fun. So – I don't know what it is, but I'm cheering for them. It's uh, much more of a mom and pop operation than I think people think. I watched a documentary a couple of years ago on Spurrier, one of those SEC network deals. It was decently well done, but he he mentioned that like Takarana never had a million dollar football donor until Miss Bryce, the, the lady whose name is on the stadium. I think it's a lady, maybe it's a family. Like the what Spurrier did there, like kind of drastically changed maybe what you think they are as a football program because that is a small. Uh, from like a money standpoint, that is a smaller operation than I think people give it credit for. for the, as it pertains to Ole Miss, you know, you we look at this game. I mean, I, South Carolina only had 286 yards of offense. Texas A&M had 398. They almost had 400 yards of offense and outgained them. So, like, the, the only – but at the same time, the only reason that game wasn't a complete farce was because the defense forced a couple turnovers – that led that's, to I mean, that's what it's the honor. It's the un, there's no variable for it. The turnovers, a uh, special teams touchdown, it, it's just you can't account for it. And it, it really screws up the look of the game flow. But Texas AM, I mean, really dominated the game. But that's what happens. You lose football games with bad special teams and turnovers. That's why it feels like it's a, uh, you know, 
it, it's something you always say, but it is always true. Uh, it just, it's the way it is. So it's a weird outcome. It's a very weird game overall. Yeah. I mean, I was talking about the A&M side, like the reason that game wasn't a, like I say complete blowout, but it wasn't the reason it wasn't a double digit game is because A&M's defense one kept them in it when the offense was just absolutely a disaster, get a fumble that turns into a touchdown, got a couple huge stops. Like they give up the 30 points, but that's so incredibly misleading because of the yardage total and all that. But as it pertains to Ole Miss next week, like Ole Miss's issues are what keep inferior teams in a game like that. A&M is not a good offensive team, but if you allow them to run at five yards a pop, if they do that 35 times in a game, they're going to be in the game and you're going to have a hard time winning. Um, They have talent all over that defense. They are going to stop the Ole Miss offense somewhat consistently. Like, I I don't think this will be a get-right reek for the Ole Miss offense. I don't think they'll score – 35 points and it's like all right now they're kind of back on track I don't know what Ed uh, Evans's health status is but even if he plays I just don't think that's a game where it's like all right they had you know 300 yards on the ground again 500 yards of total offense like when you look at this game and we can get to it you know we'll preview it throughout the week or whatever and we'll talk about it after next week but that's the that's the scary aspect from an Ole Miss standpoint is yeah this team sucks offensively but they can still run the ball a chain's awesome like they're still, they average four and a half yards a carry against South Carolina for like 129. We're chasing the game. Like they are going to stay in the game if Ole Miss is not better against the run. And, you know, the defense is going to have to get stops because it's not going to be the offense moving the ball up and down at will for four quarters and scoring 40 something points to bail you out like they did against Auburn. That's just, I, no, I don't see that happening. It's not. I mean, shit, they were playing that game and Le'Veon Moss, a five star true freshman from, from Baton Rouge, started playing and he looked great too. And I was like, crap, I forgot he was on this team. Uh, that is how talented they are. Now, they are not a good team, like I've said multiple times, but like, golly, that, that, I mean, it's a weird matchup for Ole Miss because you can't stop them running the ball. I mean, that that's not good. No, it's, it's good luck. They call it under your butt. Which is great, great, uh, you know thought process on that from me but you know yeah, but I mean it's the truth and that's that's really what we'll be telling about this team last thing on this before we get to the other games then get out of here but like what do you do like if there's ever a recipe to put a football program in purgatory it's to go out on a ridiculously long contract that wasn't warranted on a head coach that it kind of had a bad ending it's uh at Florida State Ross bids against himself and gives him an extension they had the one you know 10 in one season with COVID like I, I just it's it you know it's very hard in college football now with people just being willing to swallow up buyout money like it's just you know water down the faucet and no one cares you can change your circumstances very quickly in college football oh this is a prime example of that it was the program is not in good shape lane kiffin gets there they win five games in a COVID year then they win 10 and they might win nine this year you can change it quickly but i feel like the one way to do it is what a&m has done they're Look, someone at some point will get mad enough to where this buyout, if it's in the 70s or, you know, 80 or whatever, like someone next year, if it goes bad again, will swallow it up. But the point is, he's not getting fired this year. I just find it in this day and age of no patience, guys getting fired all the time. A&M is somehow, despite all the talent, despite the recruiting budget and all that, managed to put their football program in a purgatory of complete mediocrity, basically just on selling out on a head coach, which just looks like an idiotic move. it's easy to play the results game, but I didn't think it was a great decision when they did it. I was like, Oh sweet. They got Jimbo Fisher. Wait, how long is that contract? Why? Like it just went against the grain of anything that college football has been about for a decade now. No, I mean, it's looking like very similar to what's going on in Los Angeles with the chargers right now. You've got a head coach with a Ferrari. It's running it into a brick wall. 
Um, I mean, it's, there's really no explanation for them being a bad football team except for they're poorly coached on offense. And that, that's it. And you cannot win if you suck on offense in this sport anymore. And I, I always said, you know, yeah, they're definitely not going to be able to fire him. In my opinion, these guys are insane. If they need yeah. to shell out 25 million or not, sorry, not 25, 95 million, they might do it. It might, it wouldn't old, stun me, but that would be one where I was like, oh my God. Like, wow. No, I mean, really nothing, will, nothing will stun me in this sport anymore. It, it really won't. So if, if Ole Miss goes in there and beats their ass, um, and then those conversations, you begin to see those conversations coming out of nowhere, I'm not going to be surprised anymore. So uh, hopefully they do that because I think that's the funniest dumpster fire in the world. It is a hilarious dumpster fire. Really a light week around the SEC. Um, I didn't watch a second of Vanderbilt, Mizzou. Congrats to Mizzou on finally getting a win. Vanderbilt covered. They played hard. That's my analysis. Uh, go YouTube the video of the Vanderbilt sack fumble that they had. Okay. They had a linebacker that completely – hopped over an offensive lineman. I'm talking a standing offensive lineman. He literally completely jumps over him and sacks the Missouri quarterback. That's all I saw from that game. But It, it wasn't was, our British guy, was it? No, not the British guy. British I can't game. remember the guy's name, but they, they showed the play on the Jumbotron at the LSU game, and it was like, holy shit, that was insane. So go look at that. Uh, that sucks for, for Clark Lee. As I've said many times, I am rooting for him as much as anybody in this league. Uh, they're close. They are very close to being a good basketball, I mean, not basketball team, football team. So uh, that them. was probably their one chance to get an SEC win and didn't work out. Yeah, went straight down the tube. Uh, Alabama, Mississippi State, I watched a lot of this game because uh, it was the next one on. I had a little TCU, uh, K-State action. I was actually right down the state street from TCU's game um, while watching it last night. But uh, State, I mean – they scored on the last play of the game. They would have gone a decade, a a full decade without scoring a touchdown in Tuscaloosa if that if they had not scored on that last play. Their last touchdown in Tuscaloosa before that uh, touchdown at the end of the game was a Dak Prescott to I believe. Um, Are you serious? Eston Peace to Runya Wilson to make that twenty five twenty. They had not scored a touchdown in Tuscaloosa since. Leach, I believe, I want to make sure I have this right. I'll go back and look at it later. I believe in three tries, that was Leach's first points against the Crimson Tide. It was his first touchdown, it, for it, sure. It wasn't his first points. They, they they scored like nine last year, I think. Okay, Phil, so first touchdown. Uh, that, to me, I mean, I don't have a huge take on this, but that the, the air raid is what it is, man. The offense wasn't bad in that game at parts of it, but – you know, when you don't really have a ton of threat to run the ball, when you have teams that are better athletes against you, that kind of gimmicky, we do what we do scheme is just you're going to be a seven and five team and you're going to be nine and three with a chance to be maybe 10 and two if you have all the right pieces come in place. But it stayed as a reflection of what they are as a program. I get Alabama's better, but the fact that they just are now writing that off is this isn't going to be competitive. I saw a state beat writer said this gets harder to watch each and every year. The fact that there's just no chance. I mean, Ole Miss played a competitive game against them with no defense in 2020. Like, that to me was just a reflection of what their ceiling is and can be as a program without being too dramatic. But, I mean, my God, the air raid, you can't score once in three tries. Given Again, they scored on the last play of the game, but it took you 12 quarters to score a touchdown against Alabama. Woof. Yeah, and it's, it's beginning to bring up the, uh, the classic definition of insanity. 
deal with them. I mean, yep. it's, they, they, there's no change there. And then, you know, I saw Leach's press conference after the game where he said, you know, if you really want to scare the shit out of our players, have someone put on an Alabama uniform. That's not a great and, thing to say. And that's not a great thing to say, especially when it's your offense that can't score. But I do think there is some something to say for that because, I mean, he's in that building. He, I mean, this guy is not stupid. Now, sure. Alabama has made him look stupid. But, you know, maybe he does have a point that this team, when they see Alabama and play Alabama, they are – they just act differently, play differently, think differently. You know, whether that – he saw it in practice, you know, before the game or, or whatever it was. I don't, I don't know. But uh, it's just a bad look. I mean, and Alabama was trying – too. And the Mississippi State defense, to their credit, put up a pretty damn good fight. I was impressed. Yeah, no, they really, they really did. Uh, but offensively, I mean, they have, they have had no shot to even play a competitive game with that team uh, for three seasons now. Yeah, it, it's 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 rough, and you know they had a tough week, right? They had the kid that passed away, and it you know a lot of stuff going. Hundred a hundred percent. But you know, on top of that, the three year sample size just still is what it is, and then. I don't know. That's just a rough one. And then Leach, I saw this. I'm, I'm guilty of reading state message boards after a loss. I do it to t- a couple of fan bases. I just think it's kind of funny to read. But, you know, he started talking about the receivers and dinosaur arms and that he was a big dinosaur guy as a kid. And that's every reaction to it was like, all right, this isn't cute or funny anymore. We just got our ass kicked and he's doing the quirky Mike Leach thing. It's like, I remember working in radio before like the layoff and all that when they hired Kiffin and Leach. And I didn't know which one would be better. I didn't know which program would ascend upward or whatever, but I did. It's obvious as plain as day that when they aren't winning games, that whole leech thing when he's not in Pullman in Washington, is going to wear thin on people. Like you don't need to be going on a dinosaur rant when you just lost by 30 in Tuscaloosa. And you know, that was another dosage of that where it's just like, well, what are you saying, man? I like leech. I think he's an awesome character. So do I, so do I but I do get what you're saying. It's like that, 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 that stuff is kind of not that cute here, especially when you lose to Alabama for the third straight season, like they have. Nothing else really happened around the SEC. I mean, you had the Tennessee UT Martin, Arkansas was off Florida, I think was off was Kentucky off to Florida, Kentucky. And, uh, Georgia, were they all off? Is that did I have this correct? Uh, do, 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 do. yeah, I think so. I think they were all off. Um, we can input our our new segment of of expensive fraud coach alert. Uh, Let's do it, James Franklin. Yeah, good good win against Minnesota. He beat a not very good team that has been injured. So that's what he does very very well in Penn State. Uh, I bring this up because Mario Cristobal, another. Oh experience. yeah, I was going to get to this one before we got to the <laughs> just, I was going to tee you up. They lose to Duke. Um, they didn't just lose to Duke. They got destroyed. They got destroyed by, by Duke. a bad Duke team. Um, and I, I I'll push back on that. Uh, Mike Elko, I think he's a D, the former A and is gone there. That team has not been bad. Okay. Um, but that is Duke and you are Miami. Uh, Miami sucks. They are terrible. In this portal era, recruiting era, a year one Miami team should not with, be this bad. Should not be this bad. There is there is absolutely zero excuse for it. Um, it, it literally none. Uh, they are terrible. So uh, going along with with Jimbo Fisher, uh, my three favorite expensive fraudulent coaches. Your update is one and two, uh, which is to be expected coming from those three guys. Uh, it, honestly, 
the Chris Ball thing makes me so mad. I don't know why uh, I, I always talk with Siski because I know he knows him from Alabama. And he's like, what do you have against this guy? I have a lot against a guy who had Justin Herbert running like the triple option zone read offense at Oregon, getting paid uh, to be the savior of Miami. And I guess there's so many Miami, Miami media members that like bought into this deal and was like, we're the best. And they had the Ruiz guy buying all their players. It's just, it's such an easy fan base to cheer against. And I knew this was coming. I just saw it from a mile away. He's one of the worst game managers there is. He is a good program builder. Um, you know, it was all cute when he was speaking Spanish at the, at the press conference and everyone was buying in. Uh, this team's terrible. And yeah, they're going to have a good quarterback next year. It's a true freshman Rashada, but it doesn't matter if your coach can't coach and uh, they are atrocious and I am all here for, I'm here all for it. And Dan Landing at Oregon, that team might make the freaking playoffs. Yep. And it's year one. Credit to him. <laughs> and he's a defense. It's just, it's like, it's everything makes so much sense when you see the way it, it's turned out. Oregon who wanted him to fight and keep him is like literally seeing that that was like the best thing to ever happen to them possibly. I think it was too. I think you're dead on with that. It is now time for the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is soccer corner. Uh, I'm looking at the standings here and it's yet another week where I see Arsenal at the top. They had a tie against Southampton or excuse me, a draw against Southampton today, um, which obviously not uh, not great what you want to see, but I'll just start with our weekly question. Has your thoughts changed at all on uh, the whole uh, EPL shaking out? Because again, just go another week. I get it's a long season, but hey, Arsenal's uh, at the top and you've got Manchester two points behind them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough to really bet against them at this point. Um, I, no, I don't think anything will change. Manchester City will win this league. Um, but at this point in the season, I mean, Arsenal has been good. Uh, they, they, Southampton is, is a scrappy, tough team with a lot of really young, talented players kind of on loan from different places. They've always been incredibly successful at finding young talent. Um, so that's never an easy game to win, but that's, that's like their first draw of the season, actually. They're 9-1-1. One one. I mean, you can't argue with the results at this point, uh, not to mention that in the you know, Europa League, they've, they've been fantastic too. I mean, they're just really good. They're, they're well-coached. They know exactly who they are. Uh, they're pretty deep. They, they start different lineups. I mean, they're a really, really talented team. I mean, Man City basically gave them Gabriel Jesus and uh, Zinchenko. And, you know, that's their, their starting striker. And I think they're starting left back now. And those guys have just played seamlessly with this team. So they're really, really talented. It's hard to deny what they've done so far. I do not think they will win, but I do think they will end up being top four. We are uh, at the rabid soccer corner fan base. We have, we did get, I, I say we, I got corrected on the message board and thankfully whoever pointed this out, I was appreciative of it is I asked you last week, like how in the world is Newcastle up here in the standings with six uh, defeats? It's actually not that it's the most soccer stat of all time. They had six draws. So they had five wins, six draws. Uh, Newcastle is in fourth place. They've only lost one match. They just draw and occasionally win. I guess it begs the question, are the Saudis cool with ties? Have the Saudis become, you know, just in with this millennial generation where everybody gets a participation trophy? I, I can't fault them for this at this point. They're in fourth place, but uh, just a lot of draws in the scoreboard for our Saudi castle friends where I expected them to start kicking ass and taking names a little more in the win column. Three points. Uh, well, they kicked ass this morning. Uh, they, they played Tottenham this morning, and uh, they pretty much handled that game. Uh, Two points they, back of them now. 
Yeah, only two points back. Tottenham's lost two in a row after after getting their uh, their Heinies whipped by the, by United. Uh, they, I mean, they're coming on. They're they are really good. I mean, they are a really good club. They they play really well every game. I have not really seen them um, kind of have one of those fold up games yet to this season. Uh, they're going to be competing for this thing. Uh, I I don't know if I predict them to be top four. Uh, but I'm not going to bet against them. Uh, as you said, there's no participation trophies in the uh, the Saudi sovereign fund. That That's not how they work, uh, despite what live golf may show you, uh, that these guys play for real and they're going to go buy more players. There is no ceiling for this team. There is no ceiling for this club when you have that kind of financial backing. Um, I mean, it, it, it's going to be fascinating to see what they end up at. Uh, but they've been damn good so far. I mean, they got points on the road when they need them. They've beaten some pretty solid teams. They've competed with some of the top teams in the league, and it's, it's hard to discount them anymore. Man, you, your squad, they're in sixth place. I keep asking every week if things are getting better. They tie Chelsea, draw Chelsea 1-1. Um, they haven't lost a match in a while. I'll go back to October 9th against Everton. Uh, they draw nil-nil against our friends at Saudi Castle. Are, are things getting better? What's the state of Man United at this point? Well, everything that's not Cristiano Ronaldo has gotten better. And uh, as finally, I saw they did the whole Rob, Robbie Anderson. I, I know he got traded, but they sent uh, Ronaldo home, correct? This is now – is that the end of this chapter? Yeah, so he left before the end of the Tottenham game, a game that Manchester United won 2-0 that they should have won 6-0. I mean, it was a total ass kicking from the start. Um, and he left early, and Ten Hag said, you know, you're, you're dropped from the squad this week. Like you're, you're not playing against Chelsea. You're not even sitting on the bench. You, you're, you're training with the under-21s. Like, you're, you're not a part of this team. What do you think that's like? Uh, it has got to be wildly humbling for a guy who's widely considered one of the best soccer players to ever exist. Um, he is just not good for this team. His attitude has been shit. His play has been worse. Every time they play without him, they are two XG goals better, which is expected goals. Okay. Um, which is kind of like the analytics metric for what you know happens in a game and what should happen in a game. Um, against Chelsea, I wasn't able to really watch too much of it. They ended up with a 96-minute header from Casemiro to draw the game. But from watching the 13-minute highlight video um, that NBC Sports puts out, they're, like a, they're really great at it. You can like feel like you watch the entire game. Uh, they should have scored a lot more. They, they should have won this game, you know, 3-1, 4-1. I mean, if you just convert some of the chances they've created, they have just been so much more dynamic without Ronaldo. They're faster up front. They're more athletic in the midfield. Not everything is not funneling to try to get him to score. It's a full team. The, the issue they have is, you know, despite that, their, their ability to finish with Rashford up front has not been great. They, they, they've been – struggling to finish easy chances, which is what a great striker does. And they don't have one in this team, and that, that will cap their ceiling uh, if they don't get one come the January uh, portal window, if we want to call it. Uh, but it's hard to be disappointed where they're at. I mean, they're in sixth place, but they're three points from third. Um, they're two wins from second. I mean, so it, it's they are very much in this thing. They have played better and better and better. They're not a great team. Uh, they're not necessarily even a deep team, but they are definitely better than I thought they were going to be coming off those two pretty pathetic losses to begin the season. I love looking at the bottom, the relegation zone. Our friend, the real-life Ted Lasso, uh, Jesse, whatever his name is, uh, uh, clearly we're close friends because I can't remember his name. 
they are now in the relegation zone. They're in a tie. The all three clubs that are uh, in the relegation area now are tied for last with nine points. Um, I was just looking it up a second ago as you were talking. Leeds has not won a match since August 24th. That does it not seem great. Is our is our friend in trouble? Is Ted Lasso getting canned a year after keeping them in the Premier League? I don't know if they're there yet, but you, you're beginning to teeter on on issues there. Um, they play a unique brand of football. They they are pre- high press, high intensity, and it really these it has not worked out in their favor in these past few games, um, and that they really haven't gotten great you know, results off of teams that, like, haven't been very good. I mean, I, I'm pulling up their their last few games. Um, a 3-2 loss today and Fulham at home, not great. Leicester lost 2-0. Arsenal lost 1-0. Palace lost 2-0. Aston Villa, they fired Steven Gerrard, and they, that was a draw, nil-nil. So it, it just hasn't been good. It hasn't been consistent. Um, he's an American. He will not be given the benefit of the doubt over he's there. anchor. Yeah, he's a wanker, a yanker, all the above. Uh, so it's teetering towards issues. I'm not sure they're there yet, though. Last thing, uh, the upset of the week. Our Nottingham Forest takes down, was it a Liverpool? Yeah. Uh, that that got them for their uh, troubles. They're still in last, but they're tied for that. I guess they're tied for last. Tied for last, last. Now. But I guess a big win. So if you're like a tiny club like that, you've mentioned to me a couple of times they bought a bunch of players wherever Nottingham is when you win a match like that does everyone just get as drunk as possible and not really care what happens next that that was a huge win I just didn't do a ton for them but uh that was a shocking result in the Premier League this week yeah it absolutely was um I mean Liverpool beat Man City last week and then they lose to the last place team in the league the week after it just shows you how competitive this league is I mean I'm looking at the table right now you know there's three teams tied in the relegation zone at nine points uh, they are all only four points away from possibly being 11th. So, I mean, nobody is out of this thing yet. Um, it, it's really from, you know, seventh place to last place. I mean, it, it's all up for grabs for a lot of those teams. And I think, you know, some teams are trending different directions, but that's, I mean, this is a really, really competitive league. It's the best in the world. And it shows that if you don't show up, you know, it's not like college football, you'll get, you'll get beat by the worst team in the league easily um and that was a pretty pretty huge win for Forrest and uh maybe good things for them to come this has been the fastest growing segment on american soil soccer corner weldon rodenberg our resident football and football expert i appreciate the time my man as always and uh we'll chat with you next week all right see you all right that is our show if you made it to the end i appreciate you making this podcast a part of your day through the wins and the losses um, sure to be an interesting couple weeks ahead. We'll have much more on Texas A&M and everything else going forward. So I appreciate you guys listening. We'll have a bunch more for you coming down the pipe this week. Y'all have a safe and happy start to your week, and we will holler at you in the middle of the week, probably around Wednesday.